From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode will explore groundbreaking intersections between human behavior, resilience, climate change, and contemplative practice. Today, you're listening to a conversation from last year with renowned journalist, environmental activist, and founder of the global climate movement, 350.org, Bill McKibben. In the wake of the one-year anniversary of People's Climate March, and as we welcome 2016 with a sense of renewal and hope, a discussion on strengthening alliances between social justice, spiritual and environmental groups, and Bill McKibben's personal connection to all of this. There was a moment above all when I became more of an activist, probably was in Bangladesh. They're having their first big outbreak of dengue, a bad mosquito-borne disease that's spreading very fast as the temperature warms. And I was spending a lot of time in the slums, so I eventually got bit by the wrong mosquito, and I got it. And, you know, I, I was very sick, as sick as I've ever been, but I didn't die. A lot of people did. And I remember being in the clinic watching all these people shivering to death in this tropical fever, and it really did remind me that this was fundamentally unfair. It's 180 million people in Bangladesh, but when the UN tries to calculate how much carbon each country in the world emits, you can't even really get a number. It's just a rounding error. They use so little fossil fuel, and yet they're paying astonishing price. So we do what we can. After devoting so much of your life to the climate movement, what was it like to see millions of people come together for the largest climate march in history last year? I was just moved by the amazing size and good feeling of it. It had a certain, was pervaded for me by a certain calm and almost confidence that I quite liked. I remember being blown away by the number of spiritual groups and social justice advocates walking side by side in the streets. Did this surprise you at all? I don't find it surprising, really. The environmental movement came out of, in certain ways, the conservation movements of the 19th and 20th centuries. But for much of the last 20 years and more all the time, the focus has been on what's happening to societies around the world, as, especially as climate change begins to pinch. Climate change is such a fundamental shift that we're no longer talking about small damage to certain places or certain species or things. We're talking about something very systemic. You can tell who the kind of old school, deeply tied to the conservation movement environmentalists are because they use a lot of polar bears on their websites. I think the other thing that's going on is that with climate change, people are are realizing that the thing that's driving climate change is also the thing that's driving an awful lot of the inequities, other inequities in our society, this kind of concentrations of wealth and power. So there's a real effort to make allies and alliances with people in other fights. And do you think it's possible for so many different groups, scientists, faith leaders, politicians, social workers, to all move towards a shared goal? Sure. That's how change happens. It was very clear that kind of conservation movement was scaled big enough to accomplish certain things, get national parks declared or something, but not scaled big enough to solve climate change, which involves altering the heart of our industrial economy. I mean, it's, this is the fossil fuel industry is the richest enterprise on earth. 
So the only way to change it is with all kinds of different people, and that's a very good thing to see happening. The first 10 blocks of that march in New York was all indigenous people and people from frontline communities. You know, it didn't look like people's stereotype of the environmental movement, but that stereotype's been out of date for a while now. And what about the idea that these activists have different motivations? Helping endangered species, improving public health, and advocating for increased minimum wage. Can these people move towards a shared goal? I think anything other than um, being good consumers, very focused on ourselves, works fine. If you have a God-centered universe, you're probably going to act the right way on these questions. If you have a nature-centered universe, if you have a universe that's centered on other people and their needs and dilemmas, then you're probably going to act the right way on these things. The only people who aren't are those who are engaged in what you might call idolatry, who are so focused on their own selves. And of course, that's what the society we live in, that's what a consumer society would like us to be. So there's a lot of those people. If that's the culture, then people who are serious Christians or serious Druids or serious social justice activists or anything else are countercultural, and in that they have a great deal in common. In your book, The Comforting Whirlwind, you explore how the biblical story of Job offers a deeply biological view of the meaning of our lives. And you ask, how can one believe deeply in God and yet be so cavalier about God's creation? Can you talk a little bit more about how you became a Methodist Sunday school teacher? Always been whatever form of mainline Protestantism was in my neighborhood. I was baptized as a Presbyterian and confirmed as a Congregationalist. And then when I moved up to the Adirondacks, as a young man, all there was was Methodist. And so that's what I became. And what has it been like for you to connect the spiritual and environmental sides of your life through work with groups like the Young Evangelicals for Climate Action? I enjoy working with them immensely. I know lots and lots of people in that community and the you know Jewish environmental community and the Catholic and Muslim and Hindu environmental communities. They're all doing remarkable work. It's very, very good to see. So I think this has emerged as a kind of obvious place to be both scripturally relevant and socially engaged. As we move forward, what do you see as the greatest underlying challenge to meaningful action on climate change? The biggest practical obstacle to getting anything done is the power of the fossil fuel industry. We'll see. We're eroding its power. The biggest underlying problem is that it's not completely clear that humans in our societies are capable of organizing themselves for restraint. That's what we're going to find out. It's a very interesting moment because it's a kind of test of whether the big brain was a good development or not. It clearly can get us in a certain amount of trouble. And I think now we're at the moment of finding out whether it's attached to a kind of big enough heart to get us out of some of that trouble too. And I don't know how it's going to go. The science is pretty dark. Change is happening pretty fast. On the other hand, the movement's building pretty fast. So it feels like a race to me. I brought my copy of The Comforting Whirlwind with me today. Can I ask you to read this excerpt? So that's a good one to choose. This wholesale alteration seems so impossible. We're so used to thinking of the Earth as an enormous place and human beings as small creatures, but celebrating the glory of God means constantly striving to appreciate the exact nature of his creation. The Earth is a museum of divine intent. And as the museum goers, we should be responsive not just to the beautiful mosaic, but also to the specifications. Thank you. 
To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show. Join our mailing list and sign up for our monthly email newsletter, delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience in a changing climate, right to you. Our theme music is composed by Zoe Keating. You can find her music on iTunes or on her website, zoekeating.com. Mm-hmm.